This is The Guardian. Hi, this is Guardian Australia Reads. I'm Jane Lee. Every week we pick some of The Guardian's best stories and then we read them aloud for you. There's never a good time to get dumped. But if you have to break up with someone, I highly recommend not doing it on Valentine's Day. For the dumpy, there's just nowhere to hide from all of the couples flouting their love and happiness. And I can tell you from personal experience, it's one of the worst feelings you can go through. Writer Patrick Lenton knows exactly what I'm talking about. He was working for a publisher promoting romance novels when he suddenly found himself heartbroken. There's only one thing a romance book absolutely must have, with no exceptions, my boss explained to me seriously, spreading out a bunch of the types of titles we published and sold. Regency romances with dashing princes on the cover, paranormal erotica with sultry vampires and butch werewolves, and our specialty, rock star romances with shirtless tattooed men clad in leather. Fucking, I answered. Or, you know, at least general horniness? Foreplay? No, he said, shaking his head firmly. That's sort of a myth, mostly. It doesn't hurt, I guess. The main rule, I was told, is that a romance book has to have a happily ever after. If you're not across this trope, it's exactly what it sounds like. The end of the book has to feature the protagonists falling in love. And not just falling in love, but at least the implied idea that they are in love forever. There's definitely nuance the deeper you get into the trope. The debate about the existence and importance of soulmates, for example, being a good one. Erotica doesn't tend to follow the happily ever after rule, replacing it with the innuendo-laden happy for now instead. But as a rule, happily ever after is prescriptive and absolute. When you pick up a romance book, you know that the couple will end up happy and blissfully in love. It's a guarantee. Even after my four years doing marketing and publicity for a romance book imprint of a major publishing house, I can't pretend to have more than a passing familiarity with the fascinating and gorgeous and sometimes remarkably silly world of romance publishing and the massive community of authors and readers. The romance community is fascinating, often ignored, mocked and maligned by the male-dominated literary establishment. It became a bubble where mostly women write for other women. But it's a huge and extremely successful bubble. It just doesn't really need anyone else. The experiences I did have and the lessons I managed to pick up only made me fall more in love with it all. Maybe not a grand, happily ever after romance, I no longer work in that field, but definitely a gorgeous flirtation. The montage of my relationship with romance and erotica publishing includes the campaign where I got to hang out with hot shirtless models who gave out free copies of one of our titles to people around the city, the hilariously boozy conferences and award nights, 
and watching with pride as one of our best-selling erotica authors, a middle-aged mum from Queensland, explained on stage to a panel of famous international authors in clinical and eye-opening detail the difference between double and dual penetration, and how one was erotica and the other simply porn. Do not Google this on a work computer. Every day I went out and sold novels about true love and heart-fluttering romance and also centaur on centaur sex, don't ask, while also indulging in the most cynical and heartbroken period of my life, tracking the dissolution and breakup of an 11-year relationship. I didn't just think a happily ever after was far-fetched, At that point, it would have been hard to convince me of a happily ever after occurring again. Being dunked headfirst into the saccharine, sugary, neon pink confection of romance books every day, while also genuinely believing that love was a myth, that heartbreak was the only constant in a cruel and unforgiving world, was sometimes hard, sometimes hilarious. Once, during a publishing meeting, in which I had the pleasure of telling a bunch of upper management types what pegging was, I remember cynically describing romance books as just fantasy, but without dragons. Genre fiction of all types are often both beloved and criticised for being escapism, a way to escape the harsh realities and disappointments of our own lives through outlandish ideas like wizards and spaceships and people falling in love forever. I remember reading a male-on-male military soldier erotica book that we published. Incidentally, most of our male-on-male books were written by straight women for some bizarre reason, where lube was not only never used, it simply didn't seem to be needed in this world. See, it was all a ridiculous fantasy. Give people their little holiday away from the truth, away from loneliness and pain, I thought. It's easy when you're heartbroken to feel disillusioned about the industry of romance, the way it's being turned into a money-making scheme, into a worldwide obsession and aspiration. Things like Valentine's Day, billion-dollar weddings, dating reality shows and romance books all seem part of a hysteria, a year-round marketing ploy to make love financial, lucrative. When you're learning about the rules and tropes of a romance book, you realise it's nothing more than a formula – a recipe for fictional happiness. It seems ludicrous at best, cheap at worst. If it actually worked, surely all these romance authors would be the happiest people in the world who wouldn't have time to write books about love because they'd be too swept up in their own grand romance. I guess the moral is don't read romance books when you're heartbroken. I'd recommend true crime, the genre that reminds the heartbroken that things could be much worse. My own heartbreak came from a realisation that the romance I was in didn't have a happy ever after, despite the fact that I really wanted it to and thought it would. I thought that I was following a set of rules that would ultimately lead to happiness. I think, add or subtract some plot specifics, That's what a lot of breakups come down to. 
It's also why I think we love romance books. We love them purely because real-life romance doesn't have one rule and it doesn't have a formula, a recipe. It's more mysterious, more exciting, more strange than that. It's also scarier because at any point you could be let down again. But it's why we're so obsessed with love and why we reflect it in all our art and literature. It's why, as a treat, we sand the hard edges off in romance books and enjoy a depiction of a love that will never let you down. All the benefits of being in love, feeling great, being obsessed with someone, having someone to help you do the wordle, but none of the terrifying lack of certainty. When I think about it, I realise the only real fantasy that romance books peddle, apart from the whole lube thing, is the idea of a guaranteed happily ever after, the certainty, the fact that when we start dating someone, they are the one forever. That certainty would be so nice, so easy. What romance books tap into is the intoxicating hope, the belief that when we open up a new chapter, as I eventually did years after my time in the industry, that this time we'll find happiness. They reiterate, which I truly believe, that even though it's a risk, if you find the right person, it's worth it. That was Selling Romance and Erotica Books During My Breakup Taught Me About Heartbreak by Patrick Linton. The reader was Rochelle Fong. Over the last two years, we've all had to rethink how we meet friends and how we buy groceries, things we never even thought about before. And when you're already seriously unwell, these simple activities can be even scarier. In our next story, we hear from people who've been facing a cancer diagnosis during the pandemic. When Claire Simpson turned 50 in early 2020, she received a letter telling her to get a mammogram. Then the pandemic hit and Victoria went into lockdown. Like many people, I put it off until we were coming out of that lockdown, but by then it was September and I couldn't get an appointment until December, she says. In February 2021, She was diagnosed with breast cancer and had a mastectomy. Tests showed she was positive for the aggressive HER2 receptor. So she began 12 weeks of chemotherapy as well as a treatment called Herceptin, which she received an IVF infusion of every three weeks. Simpson says the delay in screening really, really delayed diagnosis for me by a good six months. I can't help but feel that an earlier screening could have probably saved me from having to have chemotherapy and this Herceptin infusion therapy that I'm having. She has been living in self-imposed lockdown, terrified as the Omicron wave built that she would have to isolate due to COVID and disrupt her treatment. That self-imposed isolation will continue until her final surgery, an elective operation scheduled for mid-year. Navigating a cancer diagnosis in a pandemic requires a particular level of fortitude. 
Family and friends are not allowed to sit with you for hours in hospital. And two years of staggered lockdowns have interrupted travel and important get-togethers. Activities which may be low risk for others, like going to the supermarket in a mask or attending a picnic, become high risk. High rates of infection in the eastern states have had a significant impact on the healthcare workforce, interrupting continuity of care and straining already overloaded systems. Fear of contracting COVID also means many people are avoiding going to their GP or putting off essential screening, as Simpson did. Cancer screening dropped by 10% in Victoria alone in the first year of the pandemic. In 2021, referrals to the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, a leading treatment and research facility in Melbourne, were down 40%. This is certainly going to bounce back at some point, says Professor Shireen Loy, an oncologist and researcher at Peter McCallum. It is potentially going to be a real problem in a few years' time. At the moment, we have a lot of very young cancer diagnoses, a lot of breast cancer, We are just flat chat. Loy has so far avoided having to isolate as a close contact, but her colleagues have been less lucky. There's lots of staff shortages. There's lots of staff being furloughed because of their children coming home and giving them COVID, she says. When I came back from holidays, I was pretty much the only one in the clinic. It's very, very busy and crazy from a staff shortage point of view and constantly trying to replace staff. And the patients are definitely more anxious in this wave because there's so much more COVID around. They're anxious about what's going to happen when they get COVID and whether they'll get the right treatment and having to reorganise scans and chemo. Despite the disorganisation and chaos, Loy says surgeries and traditional therapies like chemotherapy have continued. The impact has been on new therapies and clinical trials, particularly for people with terminal cancer. I don't think anyone's care has been compromised, she says, but from my point of view, doing research and clinical trials and drug development, a lot of people have probably missed out on that because we haven't had the resources to do more innovative stuff that could make a difference. For most patients, Loy says, the main impact has been having to attend treatment alone. Simpson's mother also had breast cancer. She celebrated 10 years cancer-free just before Simpson was diagnosed. Not being able to have her support in hospital for the latter half of her chemotherapy, which coincided with the Delta lockdown, was difficult. It's quite isolating to go through something like that without being able to have support people with you, she says. I also live alone, so I'm going home to an empty house as well. Another woman, who asked that her name not be used, was diagnosed with breast cancer last May and had to ask a friend to drive her up to three hours for treatment, only to walk into the hospital alone. She recalls sitting alongside a teenage girl, also alone, who cried throughout the two-hour chemotherapy session. It is uncomfortable. It is difficult. But you don't have to look far to find people who are doing it worse, she says. The 58-year-old was diagnosed after a routine mammogram, then had three rounds of surgery, including a mastectomy, then four rounds of chemotherapy and three weeks of radiotherapy. 
Her radiotherapy coincided with the Omicron wave with her last session on the 25th of January. The weekend before she was due to finish radiotherapy, a member of her household was identified as a close contact. She had spent the week in Anala House, an accommodation service for cancer patients in Tamworth, but usually went home on the weekends. I didn't want to go home and risk not being able to finish my treatment, she says. Inala House was able to provide weekend accommodation at short notice. It's just one less thing that you have to worry about if you know you have your accommodation, she says. Philip Lipscomb spent most of the last two years in self-imposed lockdown and now fears the isolation more than the virus. Christmas 2020 was the hardest. Sydney's northern beaches where Lipscomb lives was locked down just before the holidays, so he had to spend it alone. I sat at home here and pulled a chicken to bits on my own, and that was Christmas, he says. And I mean, there's no point to life unless it's got a little bit of quality. The 76-year-old has been living with pancreatic cancer for eight years. He was originally told he would be lucky to live a few months, after surgery to remove most of his pancreas and 18 rounds of chemotherapy. It was a long, hard battle and left him with two lesions on the bottom of his lungs, a time bomb that will one day go off. So when the pandemic first struck, he was very careful. He avoided the shops, relying on Meals on Wheels and local group Golden Days to deliver essentials and spent hours in the garden trying to pass the time. I don't think there was a weed that was game enough to show its face in that period of time, he says. I was very lonely, though, for human contact because the only contact I really had was by phone. Lipscomb now goes out two or three days a week with EasyLink a community organisation in the Northern Beaches which provides social outings and a medical shuttle service. I'm a social person. I did 30 years on a post office counter talking to people every day, he says. I realised that I probably will get it, hopefully only a mild version, probably, but my body, I hope, will be able to cope with that. Lipscomb says he feels for those who have received a new diagnosis in the pandemic and are undergoing treatment without a loved one to hold their hand. He advises anyone who's been recently diagnosed to contact the Cancer Council about joining a support group. He's attended fortnightly support group sessions for pancreatic cancer for seven years. Calls to the Cancer Council support line increased in January, says Amanda Piper from Cancer Council Victoria. We're fortunate that we've got vaccinations in place for many people and that's an added layer of protection, she says. But people are fatigued. Cancer treatment takes a long time. People sometimes undergo treatment for a year or more. It's difficult to suggest that it's worse now. That was Delayed Diagnoses and Self-Imposed Lockdown, Australians Living with Cancer During COVID by Calla Walquist. The reader was Carmelina DiGuglielmo.
So lately, I've gotten into re-watching old movies. The other day I watched Gladiator and noticed for the first time all the moments where Russell Crowe slips in and out of his Australian accent. I also had another go at You've Got Mail and found a whole new appreciation for that scene where Meg Ryan closes her mum's bookstore for the last time. It got me right in the feels. And it seems I'm not the only one struck by a bug of nostalgia. I've always been susceptible to bouts of nostalgia. Defined as sentimental longing for the past, Nostalgia was originally identified as an emotion afflicting people who were separated from their homeland. A familiar feeling to someone who called four cities and two countries home by the age of 12. Modern researchers say nostalgia is experienced more or less the same way by everyone, across countries, ages and genders. When people experience nostalgia, what they typically are doing is bringing to mind and revisiting memories that are special to them or cherished or particularly meaningful, says Clay Rutledge, a psychological scientist and professor at North Dakota State University. Nostalgia appears to have become more prevalent in recent years, from political slogans that appeal to an idealised past to the re-release of old video games on current devices. Streams of old music increased dramatically during the pandemic. Sales of cassette tapes, records and their associated paraphernalia are booming. And even wired headphones are back, according to the Wall Street Journal, just a few months after I finally gave in to their wireless counterparts. So what is driving this wave? There are two main triggers of nostalgia, Rutledge says. The first are the sensory inputs that pull you back into a past experience. I have a plastic toy from my childhood with a very particular smell that for some reason lives in a tin inside my wardrobe. Whenever I open it and breathe in, I am transported instantly back to my bedroom at age six. The same thing might happen when you hear an old song on the radio, or if you see a friend post an old photo on social media. The second are psychological triggers, such as loneliness, sadness, anxiety, or a lack of meaning in life. When you're feeling sad... That makes you more inclined to reflect nostalgically on the past because nostalgia helps you cope with those states, Rutledge says. Nick Bowman, an associate professor of journalism and creative media industries at Texas Tech University, told my colleague Josh Nicholas that playing old video games from your childhood can be a powerful short-term stress release. In our research, we found that people who have social nostalgia memories, memories of playing games with friends in the past, they feel connected to themselves and their friends in the past, and they also feel connected in the present, Bowman says. The human tendency towards nostalgia has been amplified by rapid technological change. A lot of change has occurred in how we experience sensory inputs, 
advances in communication tools, photography, the way we watch films and listen to music, which create sensorially rich experiences. Take the old school mixtape, something that involves spending a bunch of time listening to music you love to create something unique for someone you love. You can see how you might become nostalgic for such an emotionally heightened experience. And as Rutledge points out, a fair amount of social media is geared towards helping people connect with old friends or to share memories and have these kinds of nostalgic experiences. Then there is the psychological component. As much as we like personal growth and development, we also have an orientation towards stability, Rutledge says. We don't want the world to feel chaotic, like the way things were five years ago is dramatically different from the way things are now. And so I think one of the things that rapid technological change can do is make people feel that sense of disorientation or discontinuity. Add the disruption and extreme changes wrought by the pandemic, and you have the ideal psychological soup for nostalgia to arise. It's not any type of change. What we found is it's specifically changes that make us anxious or negative emotional changes, Routledge says. If it feels like a change that's positive, then that's fine. But when people feel disconnected in some important way, alienated, or they're just uncertain about the future, they tend to become more nostalgic. This isn't necessarily a bad thing, he says. While nostalgia can sometimes be a barrier to progress by painting a too rosy and inaccurate picture of the past that can be twisted and perverted by politicians, he says we generally don't really want to return to the past. A lot of times, really at the core of it, is seeking some wisdom from the past, that we've lost something that maybe we can rehabilitate. People don't really want to give up modern medicine. They don't really want to give up automobiles. They don't want to give up the social progress we've made on most things. What appears to be going on is nostalgia helps restore that feeling of stability. It gives people kind of the confidence, I think, to move forward. That was Years of Rapid Tech Change and the Pandemic Disruption Are Driving a Wave of Nostalgia by Shelley Hepworth. The reader was Rochelle Fong. You can find links to all of today's articles on the Guardian Australia Reads website. This episode was produced by Camilla Hannon, Daniel Simo, Alison Chan, Helen Smith and me, Jane Lee. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Miles Martignoni. Thanks so much for listening to the show. This is going to be our last episode of Guardian Australia Reads for a little while, but there's heaps of episodes you can go back and listen to, so go check out our feed. In the meantime, I'm hosting a daily election podcast called Campaign Catch-Up. It's a quick daily update of the key politics news of the day. So if politics is your thing, check it out wherever you're listening to this podcast. It's on the full story feed. All right, take care and see you next time.